0: Okay, so last Sunday morning, we started a new series in the book of Exodus. And our objective in this study is not to teach every verse. It's to show Christ in the book of Exodus. So this series series is called Christ in Exodus. We did a series called Christ in Genesis almost four years ago. And then we did a study in 2 Timothy, and then we worked our way through the book of Luke. So almost four years later, we're getting back to the Old Testament. And we're going to do some studies in Exodus. And I I love to go back into the Old Testament to see the pictures of Christ. They reveal so much to us about him. So the title of today's message is Christ, the Great I Am. And we're going to take our text from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Let's go ahead and read that passage together. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why, the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who were in Egypt, and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the places of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, Now, behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I, that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. Now, when we come to... Exodus chapter 3, Moses is 80 years old. Moses has spent the first 40 years of his life in a palace as a prince. He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised in the palace, probably eventually to be the ruler over all of Egypt. But after the first 40 years, then he flees Egypt and he finds himself on the backside of the desert and he spends the next 40 years of his life there in this howling wilderness this desolate place and so he goes from a prince to a shepherd now in the mind of an Egyptian there was no greater distance than those two things because the lowest lobe on the totem pole of occupational work was a shepherd the highest one of course would be the king the pharaoh of Egypt well he's the prince next in line to become the king So he goes from a a palace to a howling wilderness, from a prince to a shepherd. And before he left to, to go into this wilderness, he decided that he was going to try to deliver some of his brethren. Do you remember the situation when he saw this Egyptian taskmaster cruelly treating one of his brethren? And so Moses looked this way. And he looked that way and he didn't see anybody watching. And so he struck down that taskmaster and killed him and hit him in the sand. But the problem was that didn't go undetected. Some people saw what he had done and he found out that if he remained in Egypt, there was a good chance that he would be tried, convicted and executed for murder. And so he flees from the presence of the Pharaoh and finds himself out in the desert. And that's when God appears to him after 40 years on the backside of a desert. God comes to him and appears to him in this burning bush, this bush that burns but is never consumed. And of course, that's an odd sight. And so Moses keeps waiting for this bush to burn up, but it never burns up. And so he just watches it. And God starts talking to him out of the bush. And God says, hey, I've seen the affliction of your people in Egypt. I've given heed to their cry." because of their taskmasters. I'm aware of their suffering. And I've come down to deliver all of you from the power of the Egyptians. And I'm going to bring you up to a land that is a good and spacious land. A land flowing with milk and honey. And so, at this point, Moses says, "Well, that's good news, but how are you going to do it, Lord? And the Lord tells him, in verse 10, Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Now Moses is thinking, Lord, you've got it all wrong. You don't want me. I've already tried to deliver our people, and I was a miserable flop. (laughs) I made a mess out of the whole thing. You don't want me, Lord. But then the Lord goes on and he says, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign. Certainly I will be with you. See, the real question is not, who am I? But the real question is, who is with me? That's the issue. Moses at one time probably felt very powerful, very self-sufficient. He was the prince, after all, of Egypt. Very confident in his own strength and abilities. But at this point, he's lost all confidence in himself. He tried to deliver his people. He made a mess of things. Now he's been out on the backside of a desert 40 years in the lowest of all occupations. And that's when God comes to him in his humble state. And he says, I'm going to use you. And it's not really you, Moses. Don't get a puffed up head. I'm going to be with you. And that's going to make all the difference in the world. God gives him this impossible task, right? I mean, here's two to three million people. They're slaves. God says, I'm going to take you and I'm going to use you to deliver these vast numbers of people out of Egypt and make them my own people. And Moses is just shaking his head, Lord, you got the wrong guy. (laughs) I'm no good. I've tried that. I, I can't do it, Lord, but I will be with you. And it reminds me of another impossible task. Remember when Jesus addressed the 11 apostles after he rose from the dead and he told them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. I mean, if you were one of those 11 apostles and the Lord I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations. In other words, go into every part of the world and make disciples. Sure, Lord, no problem. (laughs) Piece of cake, Lord. You know, know, you're thinking that's just impossible. Lord, you're, you're giving us an impossible task. But he follows that up by saying, And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. So the presence of Christ with us makes up for this impossible task that he gives to us. And you might be feeling the Lord has given you an impossible task. You just, Lord, I I can't do what you've called me to do. But remember that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. You're in the same position that Moses was. You're in the same position the 11 apostles were in. God has called you. And He's commissioned you to do His will. And you can do that because He is with you. And He will empower you. Now, when we come to verse 13, we are really treading on holy ground. Remember, God told Moses, take your sandals off because you're walking on holy ground. Well, when we come to verses 13, 14, and 15, we are really, as a church this morning, treading on holy ground. Because we are introduced to the name of God here. The name of God. And you know, today when we name our kids, it's really not that big of a deal. We we like a certain name. You know, it seems to go the first and, and the middle name seems to go together. Okay, well let's call them Julie Ann or Rosemary or Brian David. That sounds good. But in Bible days, they didn't do that. When parents were going to name their kids, they looked for a name that had significance and meaning for that child. And sometimes God would give a name to somebody. He took the man Abram, and he changed his name to Abraham. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude, because that's what God was going to do in Abraham's life. He took Simon, which means basically shifting sand, and he said, I'm going to call you Peter, the rock. Shifting sand to the rock. Why? Because that's what God was going to do in Peter's life. He was going to change him. But when God tells us his own name, when God names himself, you can bet there's a lot of significance to that name. Because God isn't just doing this for no reason. God is naming himself so that we would see his glory. And that's exactly what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see the glory of God in the name that He has given to Himself. Now, the the generic title, God, comes up 2,800 times in the Old Testament. It's a lot of times. But the name of God here, L-O-R-D, Lord, all caps, that name comes up 6,800 times. 4,000 more times than the generic term God. This is the name God wants to be known by. God is saying, I'm not just some kind of a generic deity. I'm a specific person with a specific name that tells about my character and my attributes and my mission. And you need to understand me. To understand me, you need to understand this name that I have given to myself. Now, actually, this name was considered so holy by the Jewish people that they could not and would not pronounce it. In fact, if you were a scribe and you were uh, copying Old Testament scriptures and you came to any of the places where God's name was included, they would not put the vowels in between the consonants. They would leave them out because they thought it was too holy for any mortal person to pronounce the sacred name. And so down to this day, we do not know how to pronounce the name of God. All that has been given down to us through the centuries are the consonants, which are Y-H-W-H. They call that the Tetragrammaton. Y-H-W-H. And some people said the way to pronounce it is Jehovah. And others say, no, no, the way to pronounce it is Yahweh. Nobody really knows for sure. All we have are the consonants of the name. But within those four consonants... God has revealed something about himself because YHWH, the basic core meaning of those consonants is, I am who I am. Or if you want to give God a nickname, you want to shorten it, I am. That's God's nickname. That's his name for short. His name is I am. (laughs) Now, we're going to get into some really deep waters today. Things that I don't pretend to be able to communicate because I can't understand them. They're, they're too deep for me. Probably they're too deep for anybody, but we're going to try to go deeper today. Theologians call this theology proper. You ever heard that title? Theology proper. And you say, Brian, uh, don't talk to me about theology. I'm not a theologian. I'm just a regular, ordinary Christian. But did you know that every single Christian should be a theologian? What does theology mean? Now you can figure this out. What does theos mean? God. What does ology what does logos mean? It means the knowledge of or the study of God. If you're a Christian, don't you want to study God? Don't you want a knowledge of God? Jesus said, this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God. The knowledge of God is eternal life. Every Christian is a theologian. You're either a bad one or a good one, but we all are trying to study God, right? And theology proper is the highest form of theology because in theology proper we're studying the person, the attributes, the nature of God Himself the greatest being in the universe, we're studying Him now ecclesiology, that's one branch of theology that means the study of the church. Soteriology, that means the study of salvation. Pneumatology, that's the study of the Spirit. Hamartiology, the study of sin. We're not dealing with those peripheral branches. We're talking about the the study of God's person himself. That's theology proper. That's what we mean by the attributes of God. What is God like? Who is he? That's the question that comes to us. And God's name helps us to understand the answer to that question. Now, nobody's ever going to be able to plumb the depths of the knowledge of God. We never will. I don't think we'll ever even understand the totality of God, even in heaven. In fact, it's likely that we will continue to learn more and more about God through the ceaseless ages of eternity when we're with Him in heaven. I think that'll be one of the things that'll make heaven so exciting. And we're not sitting on clouds, strumming a harp forever and singing the same tune and getting totally bored with it. We're going to be learning about God and going deeper with God. And the Bible also says in the book of Revelation, we're going to be serving God. So heaven's not going to be boring. And there's going to be a new earth. We're not going to be on clouds. We're going to be on a new earth, a physical, redeemed, resurrected planet. (laughs) And we're going to be loving God and worshiping God and serving each other and working and all kinds of great, wonderful things. It's going to be kind of like this life without all the sin and all the misery and all the suffering. But anyway, I got off. I didn't intend to go there. Anyway... (laughs) Uh, Revelation, I'm, I'm sorry, Romans 11, verse 33, says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Now, think about those two words, unsearchable and unfathomable. Now, unfathomable means you can't plumb the depths. If you're an An oil miner, you're 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 taking that, you're you're going down the shaft and you're going deeper and deeper and deeper. But unfathomable means you can't get down far enough. You can never reach the bottom. And unsearchable means you're searching, but you can't search God out completely. We are finite creatures. He's an infinite being, and we'll never understand all there is to know about God. But that doesn't mean we don't try. And that doesn't mean we can't go deeper in this life. Because Peter says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I'd like to do this morning is take the name of God, I Am, and look at four implications of that name. God names himself for a reason. Why? Well, because he wants to reveal something about himself. And there are four things that we can learn about God from that name. Number one, God is there. If God says, I am, that means that God exists. Right? But you say, Brian, that is so obvious. Why do you even mention it? (laughs) You know, of course God is there. Well, the reason I mention it is because so many people live as though God doesn't exist. Now, they may profess to believe in God, If you go out in the streets and you ask people one by one, do you believe there's a God? Most people will say yes. Only about maybe 3% of the population would say, no, I don't believe there is a God. 97% believe in some form or fashion of God. But most of those people that you would uh, ask that question, they would live as though God doesn't exist. They would live like an atheist. And so it's an important question for us to ask. Let's say that you're visiting a foreign country and the king of that country discovers that you're in his realm. And so he invites you to a very special banquet, you and your whole family. And so you show up at the banquet, but you don't look at the king. You don't shake his hand. You don't address him in any way. You don't talk to him. You head straight for the food line (laughs) and you fill your plate up and you eat till your heart's content. And then when you're done... You leave and exit out that door without ever saying a single word to the king who invited you. That's what it's like for people to profess to believe in God, but to live for their own desires and their own pleasures and not to consult him. Do we really consult God about everyday decisions that we make? That's living like God does exist. If he exists, then I ought to ask him about these decisions. Lord, how should I spend this money? Where should I live, Lord? What church should I go to? How should I spend my free time? You know, that that's living like God does exist. We should, we should spend our time trying to get to know this God, talking to this God, worshiping this God, communing with this God, walking in fellowship with this God. But most people don't do that. Most people are not interested in really sincerely trying to find out God's will in doing it, because that would mean they can't do their own will. Remember what Jesus said? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The will of God is what's ultimately important, not your own will, your own desires. It's God's purpose, God's glory, and God's will that should be uppermost in our hearts. So let's, in our minds, in our imaginations, let's fast forward to Judgment Day. And you've got billions of people there. And God talks to that group of people that said that they believed in Him. And He said, You said that you believed in Me, right? Oh yes, Lord, we did believe in you. And so God asks the question, Well, don't you usually give more respect and esteem and admiration to that person who is most beautiful and most honorable and most glorious? Well, yes, yes, that's true. Well, then why did I have such an insignificant place in your life? Why did my existence not really seem to make any difference in your life at all? And I think that'll be an honest question that God will ask people. It doesn't matter if you profess to believe in God. Jesus will say to a great multitude, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You didn't do the will of my Father. You did your own will. You pursued your own dreams, your own pleasures. I think most people who say they believe in God give TV and their cell phones a hundred times more attention than they do to God. Video games, you just fill in the blank. That God is not uppermost in their affections or uppermost in their thoughts. You know what the Bible says about atheists? Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now that's what the Bible says about an atheist. He's a fool. How would he be a fool for not believing in God? Well, it's because he knows there's a God, but he refuses to admit it. Romans chapter 1 tells us that. When Paul was writing Romans 1, he comes down to verse 18, and he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The word suppress means to hold it down. It's the picture of The older brother who stuffs his little brother in the garbage can and puts the lid on and sits on it. He's holding him down so he can't get out. These people are holding down the truth. They don't want the truth to get out. Well, who are they? He says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. That's what the word of God says. God made it evident to all the world that he exists. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Basically, what Paul is saying here is that creation is God's testimony to His existence. And everybody who has an eye that can see can look around and they can see trees and mountains and sun and moon and they can see everything God has made. And that's God's clear witness that He exists. And so people that say, no, I just don't believe there's a God, they may not realize it, but they're lying because deep down in their heart of hearts, they know there has to be a God. I mean, you'd have to be an, an idiot not to. If you look around, how, how can this stuff just, just appear out of nowhere? In our missional community, we watch these videos that just made it so clear that God is the creator of all things. You see, God exists, and the reason people are holding down that truth and suppressing it is because they don't want to admit that they're accountable to God. And they don't want to believe that one day they're going to have to give an account and receive an eternal sentence of either everlasting heaven or everlasting hell. And he'll be the one that makes that determination. So God is there. That's the first thing that I am teaches us. Number two, God is eternal. God is eternal. Now this thought (laughs) blows my mind when I think about it. I can't think about it very long because I just, it just, it's too big for my idea to, to grasp this concept. But try to imagine a being who never began to exist. Okay. He was always there. How? You know, the little kid says, where did God come from? Who made God, mommy? And you think, well, nobody did. That's the Bible answer. God didn't come from anywhere. God has just always been there. And they say, well, how, mommy? <laughs> and I don't know. <laughs> That's just the way God is. God is a being who is from everlasting to everlasting. Wow. See, the reason why that's so hard for us is because we have no categories to understand a being like that. Every person we know had a beginning, right? Every animal we can think of had a beginning. Every plant had a beginning. Everything that we can see around us had a beginning. But God never had a beginning. That's just his nature. And we think in our minds, well, everything has to start somewhere. You you can't just always be there. Well, that's not true about God. God was always. Psalm 90, verse 2, teaches us about the nature of God. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting... You are God. It so says, before the mountains we were ever here, before you created the world, the earth, from everlasting to everlasting, that's your nature, you're God. Or Psalm 93, verse 2. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. In Genesis 21, when Abraham was going to plant a particular tree, we have this interesting statement. It's Genesis 21, verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Or if we want to go to the New Testament, we can look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 17. This is a great text. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The king is eternal, immortal, means he cannot cease to exist, and he's invisible. So that's who our God is. He is eternal. He's uncreated. He's uncreated. No one made him, but he made everything. And that's why in the book of Revelation it says, the one who is and who was and who is to come. That's our God. I am. You see, the same person who is when he spoke to Moses, I am, is the same one that was Existing before the creation of the world, and the very same being who will exist after this world is destroyed, he is the eternal I am. Now let's look at a third one God is omnipotent. Now we could deduce that truth simply from the fact that God is eternal. We wouldn't even have to look at specific texts in our Bible that tell us that God created the world. We could just, if we knew that God is eternal, we could deduce the truth that God is omnipotent. How? Because we know that everything in this universe had some beginning at some point in time. If that's true, and God has never had a beginning, then the only power that could have brought everything else into existence was God. And it would take an omnipotent being to be able to produce this vast universe that we see around us. Of course, the Bible does tell us that God is creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It also tells us in John chapter 1 that Jesus, nothing was created without Jesus Christ. He was in that process with the Father creating all things. But Wow, omnipotence to bring all of this into existence. The universe is so vast that our minds can't really conceive of how vast it is. And according to scientists, it's even expanding is getting bigger as time goes by. Our Sun in our solar system is just an average-sized star. There are stars bigger than it and stars smaller than it. There's another star called UY Scuti. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's S-C-U-T-I. But that star is 1,700 times bigger than our Sun. <laughs> And so I did a little math this morning just to play around with it, and I, I took the size of a gumball, and I multiplied it by 1,700. And if our sun was this big, this other star is two times the size of this house. That just tells you the immensity of some of the things out in this universe. And they say that our sun, that's a star, our star is one of 100 billion other stars just in our own little galaxy called the Milky Way Galaxy. And they took the Hubble telescope, and they were looking through this Hubble telescope just like a little dot. And they 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 were examining what they could see in just this tiny little space out into space. And they're counting thousands upon thousands, not of stars, but of galaxies just in this one tiny slice. So take that whole thing and, and just imagine what is out there. It, it blows the mind to conceive of the vastness of our, of our universe. But then think, so we have, we have 100 stars in our galaxy. We have 100 billion galaxies, scientists estimate, in our solar system. 100 billion stars in our galaxy, and then 100 billion galaxies just like that one. Now, God's power is beyond our human understanding. Just take our sun for a minute. How much energy does the sun put out? Well, I did a little research on this, and I found that in one second, the sun generates more energy than has been used in all of mankind's history. In one second. In one second, every second, the sun produces 400 trillion watts, which is the same amount of energy as about a trillion megaton bombs. In one second. Every second, that's how much energy is coming from the sun. And we can't even understand that much energy. But multiply that. Well, and before I get there, let me just tell you about the, 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 the heat that the sun produces. On the surface of the sun, it's 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, you take that pizza and you put it in your oven at 425, and you think, man, that is really hot. Well, imagine 10,000 degrees. But if you went down to the core of the sun... It is 27 million degrees. We're talking energy, right? But then multiply the energy of just our sun by 100 billion other suns and multiply all of that by 100 billion other galaxies. And you're just starting to scratch the surface of how much power God has. We, we can't understand it. It goes beyond our understanding. God never needs to be recharged. He never needs a backup system. He never has to be plugged into something because he's the one that plugs into everything in the universe to give them existence and life. He's the great fountain, the great source of all. God is omnipotent. And that all comes from this I am statement because if it's true that God is, that means he's eternal. That means that everything else came from him and he had to have the power to do it. And then number four, God is immutable. And this is, a word we don't use much. So let me explain that word. You understand what a mutation is? Like in science, when you're in high school, they talked about mutations. That's when a living being experiences a change in its essential being. It changes from one thing to another. So immutable means unchanging. So when we say God is immutable, what we what we mean to say is God does not change. God is the same. He remains the same. He's always the same. God did not tell Moses, this is my name, I was. (laughs) I used to be. And he doesn't say to Moses, I will be. He doesn't say, Moses, you know, I was. You should have seen me in my prime 50,000 centuries ago. Man, could I do a lot back then. (laughs) And he doesn't say, Moses... I am evolving into a higher God being. Just stick around and wait for another 50,000 centuries. You're really going to see me do some stuff then when I evolve. No, he simply says, I am. I I am then. I am then. I am now. I just am. I'm always the same being. Malachi chapter 3, if you want to find it, it's the last book of the Old Testament. Listen to what God says in Malachi 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. If I did change, I would consume you. But because I don't change, that's why you're not consumed. Because I am a gracious God. If I could change from being gracious to ungracious, I would consume you. But... Thankfully, I'm, I'm immutable. I do not change. Or we could take a look at Psalm 102, verse 25 to 27. Of old you found the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. See, both God's eternality and God's immutability are wrapped up in this statement there of the psalmist. God is never going to come to an end, and God will never change. We also have this in the New Testament. James, chapter 1, verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, now notice this, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So God is a great light, and there's no shadow in God. There's no variation in God. God remains the same forever. Now, why would that be good news for us, to know that God is immutable? Think about that. Is there good news in the fact that God doesn't change? Well, imagine a God who did change. You went to heaven, and you got to heaven. When you got there, God was a loving, gracious, heavenly Father. But after 100,000 years, He starts changing and evolving, and He becomes a cruel, mean tyrant who likes to afflict you. See, that's not good news, is it? (laughs) But it is good news to know that the same God that you trust in now will be the same God throughout all eternity. Amen? That's good news. Now, let's let's wrap this up. And I want to take you to the New Testament and show you the Lord Jesus Christ. Because remember, the title of this series is Christ in Exodus. So where do we see Christ in Exodus 3.14? Well, go with me to John chapter 8, verse 56. Jesus here is speaking to the religious leaders of his day. And he says to them, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Wow. I believe that's got to be the, the most lofty claim Jesus ever made right there. Before Abraham was born, he didn't say I was, like I was God's first and greatest creation, and so I I happened to be around then. He says, I am. Did the Jews understand what he was doing here? Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. Now, why would they do that? Because they thought he just blasphemed. They understood he was... Claiming deity when he took on the name I am. He's going back to Exodus 3.14 and taking the very sacred name of God, which no mortal would ever pronounce, and he's saying, that's me. I'm the one. The name of Exodus 3.14, it's my name. I am. Whoa. Now, if you go back to verse 24 of the same chapter, notice this. Jesus says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I know they have supplied the word he, I am he, but notice, at least in the New American Standard, it's in italics, which means it's not there in the original Greek. They supplied that, thinking it would give you more clarity when you read it, but it's better left untranslated because it's not there in the original. Unless you believe that I am... You'll die in your sins. That seems to me to be a claim that we must embrace the full deity of Jesus Christ to be saved. And if that's correct, then someone who denies the deity of Christ, even though they may believe in him, cultists who deny that Jesus is God, will die in their sins. Folks, I don't want any of you to die in your sins This is what Jesus claims about Himself. Either we believe what He said or we don't. And really, there's only three options. Either Jesus was wrong about this or He was right about this. If He was wrong about this, there could be two options. Maybe He was lying. Maybe He was trying to deceive people. That's one option. Or maybe He wasn't lying. Maybe He really thought that He was God, but He was deluded like a crazy, insane lunatic. Those are two possible options the only third option that I can come up with is that he was right. Either he was wrong or he was right. Now, you have to ask yourself, do I think he was intentionally lying to delude people into following him? Does that is that consistent with the rest of his life I see in the pages of Scripture? Or is it consistent to believe that he was a crazy man, like the man who believes he's a poached egg or he's Elvis Presley resurrected from the dead or something nutty like that? Did Jesus give off vibes like he was just an insane lunatic? Well, no, not at all. He was the most sane person who ever lived. The only other option that we've got to us is that Jesus was right. When he said, I am, the I am." he was telling the truth. And the only response to that is to bow low and worship. It's the only one. Now, if Jesus is Jehovah or Yahweh, however you want to say it, Then, number one, Jesus is there. We said God is there. Well, Jesus is God. Jesus is there. If that's true, stop living as if Jesus does not exist. Consult him when you make decisions. Ask him what he wants. Pour over his word and find out what he's already said to you in his word. Follow him. Spend your life seeking to get to know Jesus. Walk with Jesus and commune with Jesus. Live as though He does exist, and like that matters to you, like it has a significance place in your life. Secondly, Jesus is eternal. Jesus did not begin to exist when He was born in Bethlehem. He has always existed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning before anything else came into existence. He is uncreated. He's self-existent. And so don't fall into the trap of the cults who deny the deity of Christ. No, Jesus is not the spirit brother of Lucifer, as the Mormons claim. No, Jesus is not the greatest creation of God, as the Jehovah's Witnesses claim. No, Jesus is not just a great religious leader or a prophet of God. Jesus is Yahweh. That's what the Bible clearly expresses. We either accept that by faith or we reject the whole thing. I don't think you can have it part way. I don't think you can can deny that and follow Christ. That's the claim he made. If you're going to follow him, you have to believe what he said about himself. He's eternal. Number three, Jesus is omnipotent. Now that's good news because he's able to do whatever you ask him. But he always... Put a caveat on that, didn't he? He said, if you ask anything in my name. Now we've seen that a name of an individual means the nature of that individual. Anything that you ask God, see, saying in his name is not a way of just signing out when, <laughs> when you're over and done. 10 for a good buddy, over and up. You know, I'm done with my prayer. That's not what to pray in Jesus' name means. It means that you have to pray consistently with his nature. It means to pray in His will. So anything that you pray according to Christ's will, He promises to answer that prayer. That's good news. If He's omnipotent, if He's the one that flung these galaxies into existence simply by speaking a word, man, He can do anything you ask Him. And so when you go to prayer, pray expectantly and pray believing and pray laying hold of God's promises, trusting that God will do what is consistent with his own nature. Jesus made certain claims, didn't he? Not only did he say before Abraham was born, I am, he said, I am the bread of life. If that's true, he can feed your hungry soul. He can nourish your soul. He said, I am the light of the world. If that's true, he can guide you through this dark world to heaven. He said, I am the door. He can give you entrance into the kingdom of God. He said, I am the good shepherd. He can lead and guide and protect you. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He can raise your body from the dead. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He can lead you all the way into eternal glory. He said, I am the true vine. He can cause you to bear spiritual fruit. He's omnipotent. He's all-sufficient. We, we need to be, as a church, looking to Him, not to man. Although many good gifts are provided through medicine, doctors, technology, we, we are thankful to those things, but ultimately we look to God. God is the source. And then finally, Jesus is immutable. That's why we have that statement. And You've probably been thinking about this verse as we talked about God's immutability. But anyway, in Hebrews 13.8, it says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today. And forever that can't be true if Jesus isn't God because God is immutable this we're told that Jesus shares the same nature the same attributes as the father the spirit shares those same attributes with the father and the son he's immutable and so if that's true trust him lean on him now and forever his word will never change his word will never let you down if he was faithful to you in the past He'll be faithful to you in the future. Now answer me this. Has God been faithful to you since you became a Christian? Well, He's immutable. He doesn't change. You can can bank on it that He will be faithful to you in the future. Whatever need you have, He will supply that need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus if it's consistent with His will to do so. If He's been loving to you in the past, He'll be loving to you in the future. You won't find... A mean-spirited, cruel, tyrant Jesus up in heaven in some future age, he will always remain the same gracious, loving Savior that died for you. So, folks, you and I, all of us, we can look to the future with confidence because our, our Savior, Jesus Christ, doesn't change. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the name that you have revealed yourself by. I am And all that it teaches us, we're thankful, Lord, that it reveals to us that you exist and that you're eternal and that you're omnipotent and that you're unchanging and that all of those things are good news to us. And we pray, Lord, that that would shape our identity, that we would find ourselves trusting in you more and more and walking with you closer and closer and getting to know you deeper and deeper and growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.